Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. It's an honor to be with our good friend again today, Paul Galanti. So many different things happened to him during his seven years as a POW in Vietnam. We've discussed much of that in previous episodes. During this time, there were also many things that remain constant. He never lost his will to fight. He always remained true to his country, and he always kept his sense of humor. During this episode, we discuss some better times, including his last weeks and months in Vietnam, his release day experiences, and his travel back to Virginia to be reunited with his family. We'll also discuss some of his favorite Navy jobs after returning from Vietnam. So let's get right back to this. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. moved you um, from the camp that you were in. They moved you to Camp Unity the, uh, within the Wallow prison in, um, in uh, November of 1970. And you stayed there for a little over a year until May of 1972. Yep, they moved uh, the whole Fonte camp out there. Yeah. That was, that was, that was uh, actually Bastille Day, July 15th, 19. 19- 70, just before the Sante raid. Yeah. So so looking at this, it, it, it's really interesting to me that you, you spent another uh, year or so there at Camp Unity. And then in May of 1972, they moved you way up north by the Chinese border to that POW camp they called Dogpatch. Um, why do you figure they moved you after all that time? Because there, there were no really significant events that I saw it, happening. What was going on? They, they, were, they were having big bombing raids going on then. I really think what it was is they didn't want to take a chance on a lucky hit, taking out a bunch of us at one time. So they moved a bunch of junior officers out of Hanoi up to, of course, we weren't junior officers then. We just didn't know that. Um, um, but um, I guess we had probably 70 or 80, 90, I forget the number, up at, uh, because I didn't really care. We knew we were going home pretty soon. We could tell just the way the war was going. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I just don't remember. I don't remember the details that long. The only thing I do remember is I had the interrogation up there, and I hadn't had one since, you know, 1968 or so. It had been since several years, and, and uh, I figured it was going to be a, a start of purge again, and it turned out to be a... A good guy quiz with um, cookies, and I had, had uh, I don't think they had a beer, but it was a, um, um, you know, it was it was hot tea. It was it wasn't hot water. It was just hot. It was hot tea. Yeah, and, so, and, and they asked you. You were telling me before they asked you about your health. So this Vietnamese guard comes in and, and he's quizzing you, and he asks you how your health is. Um, uh, what did you respond to him? What did you tell him? I just, no, you could tell it's going to be a good guy quiz because they had cookies out on the table. We went in, so it's going to be a, a good guy. We weren't, I wasn't worried about it. And um, I had had an interrogation for you know, two or three years then anyway. And uh, so he says, ah, 
according to you, what, um, um, uh, how is your health? And I said, lousy, it's terrible. I'm sick all the time. Just, you know, we don't get anything. And it's uh, just miserable. It's cold and we're freezing up here and uh, it's miserable. Uh, yeah. He said, according to you, um, how is your food? He said, miserable. It's awful. The worst food I've ever had anywhere. It's just, you know, they slaughtered. It really wasn't because they, they slaughtered about three water buffalo. We got to listen to that thing. They, you're carving them up with a machete while they're still alive. Right. And uh, God, it was awful. But anyway, so it, well, you got a lot of you know, you really did get some meat out of it. And um, but oh, it's terrible. This is awful. It was the worst food ever. And he said, according to you, what are your wife's activities? I, mean, I have a group of these guys. I said, how do I know? I don't get any mail. And he said, maybe, maybe that is why you get no mail. And so. So I wasn't sure what Phyllis was doing, but it's obviously he didn't like it. So therefore I did. So, so you figure at that point, he's most likely referring to the activities that Phyllis was involved in with her leadership in the National League of Families. I, I didn't know, we didn't know anything about the National League of Families and I, I didn't know what she was doing, but he didn't like it. So therefore I did. Yeah. And, and, I, and I just couldn't picture her going around doing a bunch of public stuff because he was so damn shy. Yeah. Well, she sure changed a lot um, while you were gone and really took yeah. on a big role. Yeah, tell me about it. Just... <laughs> um, so um, let me ask you one more thing about Dogpatch. So you say they move mostly junior officers up there. Do you recall who who was the senior ranking officer that they brought up to dog patch that you were aware of that you were in touch with? I, well, we had, we were all O threes in our camp. I don't think we had any O fours. Um, but, uh, I think it was render Creighton. I don't ask me why I think that except he was the senior officer at Sante. Okay. And I don't remember if he was Catholic, he may have been one of the ones that got moved back to Hanoi. They moved a lot of Catholics back to Hanoi for the big, propaganda church service and uh, uh, I I just don't remember okay why do you figure uh, one other thing that I was really interested in so they 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 had you all together down at Camp Unity in Hanoi and then they took all the youngest and all the junior officers and they moved you up to dog patch why do you figure they did it that way? Why why would they not move any of the senior ranking officers up to that camp? I think I think they were keeping them all together. They don't, didn't want to stick them up there with us because they know within seconds we know the chain of command. Okay, and, and we'd have a, a senior officer, and uh, when they put all the senior officers together, these are all guys that had been squadron commanders or the Air Force equivalents. Yeah, and everything. They were all frustrated because they spent their whole career trying to get to that point. And now they all had the same thing. And so okay. they all wanted to I, I mean, that's just, that was, we never did find out. Of course, they weren't going to tell us. Um, okay. Gotcha. Well, so here, here's another thing that I, I've actually been meaning to ask you about now for some time. And, 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 and um, during your time there, you obviously had a lot of time to kill and um, you put that time to as best use you could. And, and you were telling me before that you made up commercials and jingles. And 
um, tell me about that. What what were what were those like, and do you remember any of them that you could tell me today? Yeah, I, I'll say a couple for you. Just to you now, this, don't record this because they're, they're kind of nasty, but I, I, I haven't been a, a Naval Academy midshipman. I'm sure you understand them. Oh, well, I, I think we may play them for everybody, and, and I can edit out some of the stuff that doesn't fit into a PG-13 recording. Can you put a beep on top and they can read my lips? But Yes, sir. I think I can do that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the first one we did actually starred Ray Alcord. He was, uh, he was one of the singers in our choir, and we'd formed this music course. Bill Butler, an Air Force pilot, played the piano for a hobby, and so he was teaching this music course. <clears throat> And he was he, he uh, got roofing tile and, and drew these big G clefs down on the um, on the floor of the cell and he you know da 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 he go go da 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 show where the notes are and we go da 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 and then he uh, um, would say uh, whole notes twice as long as a half notes twice as long as a quarter note that that's that's math we can understand that and so right. that made sense so pretty soon we're singing these little songs. And uh, it occurred, I just had this one in solitary. I'd be wandering around humming stuff to myself. And I just, uh, these these little jingles, uh, you know, my favorite was the Pepsi-Cola jingle. And I, I'm sure you don't remember that, but it went, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 10 full ounces. That's 10 full ounces. That's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel to Pepsi-Cola is a drink for you, which made the perfect tune for my first commercial there starred Ray Alcorn. He always played the girl because he had—he was a wrestler. He had cauliflower ears and a big nose and stuff. So they put up a bush gun. He'd be the girl, and he also sang tenor in the choir. And uh, and Bill Butler, the music prof, would—he'd be the announcer because he had a real rich baritone voice. <laughs> and then, and so the the commercial went something like this. <clears throat> Ray would come out there and he had a bush gun like that. <laughs> and Bill was like, why what's the matter? I'm so can't get a date. And uh, he said, not to worry, we have just the, just the product for you. And in harmony, the two of them would sing. It's <clears throat> um, really great when you haven't got a date. If you wish, that was a commercial, and it cracked everybody up. It's just you know, this is stuff they would never advertise. Down, they're, they're advertising worse stuff than that on television now. But back then, they wouldn't have anything like that. Right. So it was hilarious. And there were a couple other ones. One, I, it, was, it was clean enough that I could sing it when I was doing a, a presentation in high school. And that, that was uh, Cisco Kid. Toward the end, after my boys knew who he was. But that was it. And everybody younger, I had to tell him, explain to him who the Cisco kid was. Do you remember him? I do, yeah. Okay, okay. See, there's a certain age where it cuts off. And so I'd have to explain who the Cisco kid was. But this is, remember, we used to start off with, they're galloping down the ride and shooting pistols up in the air. Says, hey, Cisco, hey, Poncho, hey, Cisco, we got to get out of here. Mind these horses, they ain't fast enough. And he said, Hey, Cisco, look up there. There's an hombre with a Ferrari. And so they go, let's go take his Ferrari. So they went up, okay, hombre, stick him up. Hombre, suck him up. And then in four-part harmony, uh, Pancho, Cisco, um, 
the sheriff and the guy with the Ferrari would sing. <clears throat> the engine is a V12, the car she goes so fast. When you drive Ferrari, I think you don't get past. So why not drive Ferrari? 12 grand is all you pay. This is 1965. <laughs> drive a new, new Ferrari and drive your cares away. Ferrari. <laughs> Ferrari. Ferrari. For me. Ferrari. Ferrari faster than my A4C. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, so you guys could could make a whole afternoon of this thing, uh, of all these commercials and jingles and keep yourself occupied, huh? Well, the guys are, the, are, are there were the, we call them the, this, this big piano keyboard that, that Bill Butler drew on the floor. These guys would stand on the numbers on the keys and sing, and then they jump to the next note. Since it was a communist country, we could refer to that as the people's organ. And, <laughs> and, and they'd hum in the background while Bill Butler would sing a song, and it really worked out well. To this day, I can, I, I mean, I remember I, when I grew up as an army band, we kept moving every year. And every I'd always hit the place where the mandatory music course was. And I don't remember anything I ever had from any of those mandatory music courses. But to this day, I can still picture how to make a, a minor chord out of a major chord by picturing Jim Ray, the baritone. Jumping down half a step <laughs> from, from E to E flat. Oh, that's great. So, what did the when when you guys were inside doing these jingles and and you were cracking yourselves up and laughing and hooting and hollering? What what did the guards think that you all were doing in there? They must have thought you were cra going crazy. Well, they they weren't sure the the, the word. I mean, we wouldn't have done this back in the good old days, but the, you know, they the torture had basically stopped. And uh, they, something, if we make too much noise, they come and tell us to shut up. But usually they sit there and watch us and just wonder what the hell we were doing. <laughs> and all start laughing at the same time. And, of course, they're telling these movies, and which is that's kind of funny in itself. And some guys are really good at it. I mean, they could do everything from the – I remember everything about a movie, including the initial credits rolling at the start of it. And then they go through the whole movie and as the credits rolling at the end. And uh, – um, uh, and they were really good at it. And this was when they'd, they'd lose their voice about halfway through, and so this uh, we'd feed a commercial in. Right, especially when Russ Temperlake was doing War and Peace, which took six weeks yeah. to do. And we had you know several commercials for that that we did, and, and it just it was just a uh, it was part of the fun was the fact that they would never have nasty commercials like this in the. Um, until on, on television, my God, in the U.S., never. Right. Once we came back, and yeah, times that times have changed quite a bit. That that's nothing for today. What's what goes on oh, on TV these days? Well, maybe maybe you could take credit for that. Maybe get start collecting <laughs> some royalties. Yeah, I, yeah, I should have. Uh, uh, actually, have sunglasses. Uh, if it's an all male audience, sometimes I'll sing that one. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, the the the, uh, the one with the Cisco kid. Right. We're doing that one. Yeah. Um, well, that was certainly a very innovative way to uh, to to take up some time and keep yourselves occupied during that. So. Next thing uh, I wanted to ask you about, so 
Uh, as time was passing now through 1972 and you start getting into late 72 and um, then er into early January, um, they moved you, uh, they moved you back from Dogpatch back down to Hanoi in, in early January of 1973. And this is just prior to your actual release. February 12th of 1973, when they moved you, did you know that they were taking you back to Hanoi and getting ready to release you? Did, did, was that clear at that point? We didn't realize the bombing had stopped because they, they, they were playing Radio Hanoi for us on battery-powered portable radio, which is, it was awful, but we could hear some stuff. But they, when they, we moved back, it was daytime, uh, they didn't get us all dressed up. We were still, we just had our shorts on because January in, in North Vietnam is still pretty warm. And uh, we were in this, this truck. We could see out, see out the back of the truck that they were riding us down there. And I guess maybe we were in the bus. I don't remember. But we weren't blindfolded. Uh, we didn't, they weren't handcuffs or anything. But they just said, you know, uh, uh, you must behave. You must not do anything. So, we weren't sure what was happening. We didn't want to mess up a good deal, so uh, we were we were pretty good. And uh, but we rode all the way back to Hanoi, which took about it took several hours. And uh, and we could see all kinds of stuff bombed out and wrecked, and, and just everything was just a big mess all over everywhere. So the U.S. And, bombing uh, in the media oh, yeah. area around Hanoi had been pretty intense. We were coming down the major north side. That's it. The Northeast Highway and the Northwest Highway. One goes up into China, and the other goes to uh, off to Indochina, off to Laos. And uh, we were coming down the Northeast Railroad, the Northeast Road Highway, and uh, everything was bombed out. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't any nothing was standing anywhere. And, uh, wow. Um, how were the guards treating you at that point? Now, getting to late 1972 and up to this point now, and real early January of 73 when the guards were moving you back to Hanoi, uh, were they treating you better than they had been years ago? They, they were, but they weren't happy about it. So they'd obviously been told to lay off of us. And, uh, right. but, but, you know, we kind of wink at them and just, you know, we knew something was up as something they really didn't like, but they had to be nice to us. So you could so tell they kind of wanted to lay into you and mess yeah, with you. Went, of course, we'd found out about the moonshot. Uh, I remember the first time I heard about it, but this was way after the fact. We were probably the only Americans in the entire world uh, then who didn't know about the moonshot. And uh, uh, but if we saw the moon sometime when we were traveling, um, I'd always say, we allow you to look at our moon. That's the U.S. US moon. We own the moon. <laughs> and we didn't know any, anything about the rules of it. They said, oh, no, 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 no. So said, U.S., man, man on moon, man up there, up that. That's the U.S., pilot, pilot like us. And um, they'd get all pissed off about that. And, oh, and that's then we didn't fun. find out until we, uh, we knew. Uh, we, could, we had guys in the camp. We'd heard somehow. I think somebody got a little sugar, one of those little sugar things in paper they have in restaurants. And it had... Picture of Buzz Aldrin standing there with the flag sticking out straight, and they had up there, you know, June, July twentieth, nineteen sixty-sixty-nine, I think, right? Sixty-nine, yeah, yeah. nineteen sixty-nine. 
course, we were the only, only Americans probably that didn't know about that. Yeah, that that's tremendous. That's how how about the food? What so is the food getting a lot better uh, at this time or, or more plenty? It, it we, we do we, we knew they were hurting. The guards we were getting the same food the guards were, which is really unusual. I mean, it had you know flavoring to it. They put some hot sauce in it or something, which I, I particularly didn't care for at that time. But uh, it was just rice, pumpkin soup and rice. But the, they they put a sprinkle a little something or other on it to make it taste better. Yeah, and uh, and they they're uh, and we could tell that something big had happened because um, when they were reading about the you know the peace treaty had been signed. We were back in Hanoi by then, and uh, and this this went up the this big radio antenna across from the uh, um, the camp, and up this big, big huge Vietnamese flag flying up there. It was Vietnamese, and and, um, and and I looked up at it and said, "It's upside down." Is it the flag? You know the the two P things are supposed to stick down. Right. And, but the, the one point was all the way down. And I, he couldn't tell, I guess, when he was up on that ladder, you know, maybe 800 feet up in the air, he couldn't tell that this was uh, upside down. He came down. And I went over and said, I told the, uh, uh, Gordon says, we must have won the war because you have flying, you, that's a distress signal. What? You're talking, the flag is upside down. He looked up and said, oh, he, he did that's the Italian equivalent, but that's that'll get him in trouble for doing that, right? Well, so anyway, so I went back, back up the ladder again, all the way to the top, and turned the flag upside down. I yeah. said, so that that's funny. Um, so when they got you back down to Hanoi and they put you back in Camp Unity, um, I imagine conditions changed quite a bit because you were telling me before at Dog Patch. They had very small buildings that were separated, so you weren't able to communicate with each other uh, significantly. When they brought you back down to Camp Unity, did they put you in one of those big cells with 40 or 50 people again? Yeah, they did, but it was reorganized. And so we figured out pretty early by order of shoot-down. You know, Alvarez was in there and Shoemaker, and number three, I think, was Phil Butler. Um um, anyway, but everybody's in there by shoot-down order. And uh, there are 48 of us, which was a couple of airplanes worth of POWs. And uh, so the, the, we were basically, the first airplane coming out of Hanoi by it was mostly filled up with, uh, with the wounded guys, the B, B-52 guys who had just been shot down. And uh, um, and then it started, it started with Alvarez, I just started working right on down. Yeah. And I barely, I barely made the third airplane, and it went back. I was shot, shot down June 17th, and it went back to about July 10th, I think. And there was a crew of five, a B-66. They got the pilot, and one of the navigators came out and that on the first day. The other three guys were moved out for the next release which came a week or so later, 10 days. But they were playing games, and, and uh, we weren't sure. Uh, we were back in back in a hospital. I was at Portsmouth Naval Hospital in Virginia Beach. And, of course, we had a, a room there, and Phyllis got to stay in the room with me, and they had another sitting room. They had a, you know, it's a typical military barracks-type stuff, and we had uh, 
normally it's two people in one room and two people in the other room and the head in between. But we had one entire room just for me and her. And then in the sitting room with a television in it. I mean, it was really the nicest hotel ever. Oh. We, think, we yeah. think that's the reason Admiral uh, Aronson became um, the Surgeon General of the Navy for his next assignment. He made Admiral and then uh, made Surgeon General. Uh, that That's nice. Um, let me ask you one more thing about kind of some of your last days in Hanoi. Um, my dad told me right before he was getting released, they came to him with all kinds of care packages and letters from my mom and family that we had written to him years earlier and they never yeah. gave to him. And they just came into the cell and they dumped that all on him and said, here you go. And did they do anything like that to you? Did they give you a bunch yeah, of I mail? Got, I think I got 10 or 12 very old letters. You know, they'd been mailed obviously before they'd had them for a long time. Yeah. But they were they weren't sealed. They'd been open, slid open. I'm sure they read them, but they just kept them and gave, they gave me that. And they some stuff that had been in packages, a, a little towel which we kept for years that Phyllis made, and a little cartoon character of um, uh, a, a little guy in a uniform, and then uh, and a blonde girl, and then a little dog like our little dog we had that she'd sent me. This thing was a dish towel or something. It was Everything was very light because so, they were only allowed to send one kilo every time, two pounds. Yeah. So, and, and she went, she worked at Reynolds Metals. So she used to go down to the the, um, the mail room at Reynolds where they did all their packaging and stuff and mailed it out. And so my packages were always, it's almost like they were put in a, a, a container, you know, a Reynolds wrap or something. They were squeezed so tight in there and uh well, I, I never got anything to eat out of the, the packages i think i got one pack of kool-aid one time right. and uh and none of that was in those packages coming back none of the i'm sure they ate all those yeah the and vietnamese that, would take all the good stuff and give you whatever they didn't want basically right well phyllis hated the fact that i smoked so she would never send me cigarettes but you know she was in, in richmond and um uh, they, they could have put uh, uh, Philip Morris in there. You know, the, the plant is here in Richmond. and um, But she never said anything like that. And so all I got was, you know, trail mix and, and stuff. Everyone, everyone, I, I didn't get much of that because they'd been broken open. And by that time, they also had the little radios that were getting shipped back to us. And so they, they do it. They were cutting everything up, including taking a big pack of M&Ms and cutting each of the each little M&M in half, looking for contraband from the CIA. Yeah. Um, what about what can you, what do you remember? So I know your release day was February twelfth, um, nineteen seventy three. So what do you remember about that day in particular? Did did that day start off like any other or or, or did you know you were going home that day? Had they you know, told they you that day or two? They had three airplanes full of people go that day, about an hour and a half or two hours apart. And so we'd seen uh, out of the window uh, one of the cells, they heard this this sound sound like a turboprop. It was a C-130 that was bringing in the uh, 
oh, and the American escort officers and the ones in charge of the release. And a couple of Air Force colonels and stuff like that. So we saw that. And then we saw a C-141. That was actually, um, I think I th saw one C-141 before I got shot down. And that was the, whatever they call the XC-141. Uh, 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 They're being evaluated over at uh, Edwards Air Force Base. And flying out of Lemoore, we used to go shoot approaches into Edwards and, and come back up again. That's where I saw my first SR-71. Oh, wow. It was going, it went by me like I was standing still. And it had its <laughs> wheels, wheels and flaps down. It was coming in for a landing, going twice as fast, was looked like twice as fast as I was cruising. Right. Gosh. Um, well, so when you went to bed, when you went to bed on February 11th, that night, did you know you were going home the next day? Had they no. told you at that time? You didn't. No, no. We knew something was up. They were uh, had been giving us uh, new clothes. You know, it was the, I think it was Czechoslovakian. I don't remember, but it was a jacket and some pants and uh, some actual shoes with with uh, shoelaces in them. And and uh, we had to relearn how to tie shoes and stuff. But uh, we got that the night before. Some of some some guys did. The ones on the first thing. Then we the rest of us got it the next morning. And they were just giving, you know, throwing it out to us, and um, and they had uh, tried to make sure it sort of fit right. They didn't worry about that too much. Yeah. And uh, so we figured something something big is happening. But uh, up to that last day, we weren't sure that was the day we were leaving. Did any Americans come to uh, to the Wallow Prison? and say, okay, come on, let's load you up? Or did the Vietnamese transport you to no, Gilam or Gilam Field? Yeah, the, Viet, the Gilam, the, the Vietnamese um, took care of all that. They got us all. Though we did see some Americans in the camp, and they didn't come and talk to us. They were just showing them through the, the wonderful living accommodations we had. <laughs> and, um, but they, didn't, they couldn't come in the rooms. Okay. So they, they weren't treated to the delectable smell, a smell of honey buckets. You know that we got to eat lunch too every day. Yeah. So, so uh, did they just start bussing you or put you in trucks and take you over to the airport though that day on the twelfth? We, we did. There was three groups. We'd figured that out, and um, um, I mean, I was um, in that last group. I think I was. There's a picture of, of Al Murray and Daryl Pyle who were shot down together just before I was. And then Ted Kaufman was shot down a day or two before me. And then me. And we're, we're standing there in this photo that I've, I've got somewhere. Um, we're standing there all lined up, ready to go out. We were the first ones in the third airplane. Will, will you send me a copy of that picture if you can find sure. it? Yeah. That would be really neat. I'd like to see that. And by the way, I've seen... Um, Actually, that, that's that was used on the uh, hospital thing down in Pensacola. They used that picture of the release. I'd, I'd never seen. It. I didn't know there was a picture of me getting released. But I'm standing right behind Daryl Pyle, who's six five, and I'm I'm not nearly uh, um, that tall. But you can see my head between uh, Al Lurie, who was his pilot, and he was a, a Gib Air Force Academy yeah. grad. But he was a Gib, and then I was my head's right over their shoulder. 
if you can find that picture, I'd love to see it. That, that, sure. that would be really neat that, um, I I've seen a lot of pictures of you and, uh, of Phyllis and, and there's some really neat stuff. So, uh, they, they take you to the field and when they brought you to the airport and, and you pulled up there, were there a bunch of Americans there at the field and was the aircraft already on the ground waiting for you? It was. Um, there were, I think, three three airplanes came and went, <clears throat> plus the one that brought in the, uh, the, the, the Air Force colonels and stuff that were taking um, charge of us. That's when your dad went up there. <laughs> he, went, he was up there. He went up to the colonel and said, Hey, see, son of a bitch. That's the, the rabbit. He tortured everybody. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Stratton, get on the airplane. Shut up. Yeah, I remember that story. He told me that many times. That's funny. Um, so you, you, you pulled up and, and then um, I've, I've watched a lot of the POW release videos. There's a ton of it. They're, the uh, main, there, there's a museum up in Maine that does actually a really good job of putting that content out on YouTube. Yeah, it's Lee, uh, Lee Humiston's museum. Yeah, he does an outstanding job. And I've seen a lot of the POW <clears throat> release video. And so they pull you up there and then they call out the names one by one, turn you over to American hands and, and you get go get on the aircraft. At, at that point, did you feel safe um, when you your name was called, you shook? you know, the hands with the Air Force colonel there and they, they march you off, get you on the aircraft. Did you feel pretty, pretty good? Like this is a done deal at that point? Yeah, sort of, except that we didn't trust them. And I just remember, if you notice, there's, you know, you never see any Americans smiling in those pictures. They're all, yeah. they're all walking off because our marching orders were, don't show any emotion. They'll okay. use it for propaganda. So we were happy as clams because we knew what was happening, but right. we didn't show any emotion. And we went up and uh, not till we got on the airplane and they, they brought the ramp up and back. Then everybody started cheering and yelling. And, and then uh, we're rolling down the runway and said, these bastards are going to shoot us down. <laughs> and so, and it wasn't until uh, the, the, the pilot of our airplane, we had two full colonels in our airplane. I think it was a wing, wing commander and one of the airplanes had two generals flying it because uh, wow. they wanted to be the ones to come in and get the guys. Um, um, but the, oh, the, the wink of the squadron commander of the plane that took us out said he, he was the plane was loaded with VIPs, and he said they all wanted to be in part of this deal. And he said, he said all these people have flown the C one forty one before, and uh, I don't know that was like I'm sorry that was when they were taking the last the Hanoi taxi and putting it in the uh, Air Force Museum. Yeah. So all these colonels and generals retired. I wanted to get fly it for one more time. This lieutenant colonel, who was the squadron commander, said, "That's the last thing I need is have one of these bozos pile up one of my airplanes on the way to the museum." So yeah. he said, "Sorry, general, you just eat your heart out." Yeah, well, that that's neat. So you you took off from Hanoi in the C one forty one, and your first stop is Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. So did. You have any recollection how how long was that flight from Hanoi to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines? I think it was it was about eight hundred miles. It was probably two hours. I, I just don't remember. Okay, 
And when you landed at Clark Air Force Base, got off, got off the plane there, uh, do you, what, what were your first memories? What was the first thing that you wanted to do? do you, well, first thing I wanted to do is get my escort officer. We couldn't get on the bus to go to the hospital until we were married up with our escort officer. And mine didn't show up. I knew what his name was, but he wasn't there. I said, oh, Jesus, I've got some bozo that's probably still drunk from being in the bar last night. And uh, pretty soon this uh, uh, very sharp-looking Navy lieutenant commander <laughs> comes running up. He says, okay, we can go now. And, and I said, where you been? He said, I've been over at base ops. This base is so screwed up. You are number one on the first airplane going back to the States. I just went in and told them that. They just wrote it down. So now we've got to get you back and get you through all the checks and stuff they were doing at the hospital. And so we went back to the hospital, and he ran me right to the front of every line and said, excuse me, you mind if he goes first? He's, he's on the first airplane going back tomorrow morning. Oh, no, no, okay. We all knew everything about each other except what we looked like. And I knew there were a couple of guys I knew. I said, what the hell's Galani doing? I just went up and so I went and got my teeth cleaned right away and got measured for glasses and and uh, and I mean all this stuff just right in front of each line. Well, you can you can finish up pretty early when you're number one at each clinic. <laughs> so I go bing 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 as fast as we can go. So it comes time to eat. We're the first ones to get something to eat at Clark. And there's this little uh, Asian uh, Air Force captain um, who was a di- dietitian or something. And I just remember uh, going up there. I said, "Well, um, what do you want to eat?" And I said, well, I'd "Like a 16-ounce steak and and uh, half a gallon of ice cream." I said, oh God! So you can't eat that. Your system's not ready to take food like that. And so I jumped on, did, on my hands and did 25 vertical push-ups, balancing, and then got up and said, "If you can do that, I'll eat a bland diet. If you can't do that, I'm eating steak and ice cream." And, she got a little prescription pad out and said, okay, give him whatever he wants. And so I had a 16-ounce steak and a half a gallon of ice cream. Oh, that's awesome. So did you have time for a beer call that night in the officer's club before you headed back? Or no, you we're, no we're, we're, we were the first group. We weren't giving anybody any flack then. So the subsequent groups, um, uh, I, I know there were some guys that night that um, um, got busted just they busted out and went over to the club and they had beers. Uh, I, I wasn't one of them because I'd get in bed because I had to get up early next morning on the first plane coming back. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, I, so it turned out your your escort officer turned out to be pretty darn squared away. He got you on that first flight and got you all squared Al, away. His name was Al Santoro and he was a black shoe but it was a um, I forgot what they call him, Anglico uh, 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 Navy Gunfire Liaison. Okay. So they'd put him in because he knew what the guns could do. They'd stick him in with uh, Marines and Army troops just so I could call in uh, Navy gunfire. Okay. And a good guy. And I, I, I lost track of him after we got out of the hospital. He stayed with me. Um, and we got to the hospital, and, and we started doing all that stuff. Did he They're stay with of, you? Did he fly all the way to Norfolk with you, or did he leave you yeah. when you took off? No, no. We... we Flew from, um, we flew, I got into Clark, and that's where I got married up with him. The next morning, we got on the first airplane that went back to the States. And it flew from Clark to the uh, Hawaii. 
and I got there, and and and, um, and Al, Al came up to me and said, hey, there's a girl out here that says she knows you, you want to see her. He said, what's her name? He said, April something. Oh, yeah, my old girlfriend, sure. <laughs> and so, and so um, and went down there, and it's a long story, I'll tell, which I'll tell you, so this is too boring now, but uh, I, I met April in Turkey, and, which is where I met Phyllis, and Phyllis and April knew each other, and, and they didn't like each other a whole lot. So anyway, <laughs> so April, April, April comes running up, and I'm standing outside the hangar. They, they're serving breakfast upstairs while they're gassing up the airplane. And um, so he took me downstairs, and April came running up and just jumped up, threw her arms around me and all this other stuff. Well, unbeknownst to me, they weren't nobody could talk to anybody yet. And so um, off in the distance in the trees is one of these television cameras. I, I didn't know about this uh, um, satellite television. That, that came after we got shot down. Right. And then so um, uh, off in the distance is a television camera with a big long lens and it goes zeroing right in on uh, me just as April jumps up and her feet are up in the air, just everything. And unbeknownst to me, it goes up to the satellite like this. It comes bouncing down to Richmond, Virginia, where Phyllis is watching us. Oh, no. And she's watching. <laughs> and now, um, uh, you know, here comes one of the POWs. I think that, that might be Lieutenant Commander Kalani is coming out. And so she's watching us. All the girls, she's watching them back in Richmond. Um, it's late at night. And um, and I said, oh, there's someone right to say hello. <laughs> and uh, I said, boy, they obviously know each other. And, and zeroed in. And, and, and Phyllis was ready to, she swears she doesn't remember that. I said, you, you remember that the, the day you die, you're ready to kill me. You were torn between happy to see me and wanting to kill me. When you saw April come running up, oh, that's funny. That 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 that's really hilarious. Um, so, how long did y'all stay in Hawaii before they fueled? Did, did they? It was it just a fuel stop, and they got y'all set and took off again. We were the first ones. I know. Got in late in the afternoon. I had to wait for Al to get come up before I get on the bus to go to the hospital. So I was one of the last ones at the hospital that first day. But he, he got me through every clinic. Ping, 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 ping. And then to the chow line, and um, um, yeah, but I, I was talking about in Hawaii. So when you guys landed in Hawaii while you're flying home, um, that was just a fuel stop, right? And so they just fueled you up. It's a fuel stop, and they changed. And they changed the crew. Okay. They just it's 10, 10 or twelve hours, and uh, they changed the crew and, and gassed the airplane up, and then we flew from there to San Francisco. And, and the then, same uh, di- same drill in San Francisco. You you landed, got some fuel, maybe a yeah, crew Travis, change. We went to Travis, and we stayed on the airplane. The ones that were going to West Coast got off there. And they got on smaller airplanes, C nines, and flew to Sea. I think it's they flew up to uh, um, Whidbey, and uh, okay. there were different Air Force bases up and down the West Coast. And then we we flew from there to. Scott in St. Louis, and that's when we changed airplanes and got on a, a, a DC nine, C nine, and three of us. Um, actually, more than that, um, we flew to Norfolk first and dropped us off. And we got in late, like two o'clock in the morning. 
Who are those? Who are the POWs that were on that plane with you that actually ended up landing at NAS Norfolk that early that morning? Uh, Denton, Jeremiah Denton, and Jim Mulligan. Yeah, and me. Yeah, well, just three of us. Yeah, I remember and, both of those guys. But we, we were taxiing in in Norfolk, and <clears throat> Denton's already—he's been the SRO about ten times, and he said, he "said Paul, we were taxiing in." He said, "Paul, you know this is uh." I've done this. I don't have anything else to say. So you get out and say something this time. And, you know, I mean, I was the lieutenant commander. I was actually a lieutenant JG that was disguised as a lieutenant commander. And I was supposed to go out there and say something like this. That's not, that's, he's a senior officer. He's supposed to do this. So I got out and saw Phyllis. And my parents were standing there right in front of the crowd. And so I, I got off the airplane. I was supposed to say something. And I, I couldn't think of anything. So I just got off and said, we're really glad to be home. It's a very cold night. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning. We missed Valentine's Day by two hours. And we're standing out there. And I said, over there I see my child bride, who I haven't seen for seven years. We've been married for nine years. Two of them, we actually live together. And the rest yeah. of the time, we're not. And I see her over there. So I got more important things to do. And so... Um, thank you all for coming. And I, I just got saluted, went running down, went running over to see her. Yeah. And that's probably about the time that picture I've talked to you about this before. That's probably about the time that picture that I've seen of you two, you and Phyllis that ended, uh, ended up on a, on the cover of Newsweek. Of Newsweek. It's that is by far my favorite picture of you guys. Uh, I told you guys both look like movie stars in that picture. It's unbelievable because you had been well, up for like 24 somebody, hours. The, the photographer who took that was French. He just happened to be over there. Yeah. And <clears throat> I didn't know that till much later. But um, uh, um, he said, somebody yelled, take off your hat and turn around. So I, I did. You know, anything somebody told us to do, we did. Right. I right didn't, didn't want anything to screw it up. So I just turned around and, and you know, flashed the uh, you click, 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 and a lot of flashes and stuff. And and I had no idea that that was going to be on the cover of Newsweek. But at the hospital, but we went to, from there, after so we got some staff cars and rode over to the hospital. And uh, uh, a couple weeks later, that Newsweek came out, and one of the doctors went down and bought a whole box of them from the exchange, a whole box of those Newsweeks. So we had these all these brand new copies of with no mailing labels on them or anything and uh, we gave those away for a long time oh that's and, great so now looking at this back in retrospect now uh other than missing phyllis and being with with your family and 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 having your freedom what was the one thing that you missed the most and that you were happiest to get when you got home what what was the best luxury for you Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I always liked it, but I never, I never gorged on it like that. But, um, and I literally had, you know, my first meal was a, a, a big steak and a half a gallon of ice cream. I look back at that now, I said, how did I ever get that down? I only weighed 125 pounds. Right. And, you know, and when I, this stuff went down there, my stomach was just bulged out and, it looked like those cartoon characters where the ostrich, <laughs> ostrich swallows a basketball and his big yeah. bulge in his neck. That was me. 
That's funny. Um, so how much time did you get off? So now you're, you're back in, in Virginia. Um, how much time did the Navy give you to recuperate, uh, get reacquainted with your family before they assigned you to, to new duties? What, what was the convalescence? Oh, I, was, I was actually attached to the hospital until September. Okay. This is February, February to September. And uh, most of that was, I was getting a lot of speaking requests. And so I had to learn how to drive again and went through that. And, and uh, that was awful. I kept hitting the curb, just swinging wide, <laughs> hitting the curb. And uh, but finally, I got my drive. The, the Virginia sent down a couple of state troopers, and they gave us the, the whole bit on everything for driving. And we weren't going to flunk it. Um, right. But um, but I started driving right away. But it took it took a, you know, a couple of days or three days just to get used to going fast again. And uh, uh, and but Phyllis's mom lived in Blackstone, just south of Richmond. Phyllis had an apartment in Richmond, and so I was basically going back and forth. I have to check in a couple of three times a week. I was living in Richmond with her, and uh, okay, we go we go back and forth together. And, um, but I was doing a lot of speaking all over them. Everybody wanted me to talk to them. And so I was doing yeah. a lot of school stuff and, uh, it came time for an assignment and I wanted to go flying again. And, and uh, well, I was originally going to go to VF 43 in Oceana, East Coast Top Gun. And, <coughs> uh, Phyllis said, what do you want to do that for? And said, so I can go back flying again. He said, you do that, you're going solo. <laughs> She's obviously not really uh, ready for some more family separation time. Right. I can't. Who could blame her after that? So did did you even so did you go ahead still and get requalified and on the oh, yeah. aircraft and everything? Yeah, we went through refresher training. OK. Everybody else was going uh, to Kingsville. Okay. But uh, one of my old buddies from Lemoor was the skipper of the Top Gun Squadron at Oceana, the East Coast Top Gun Squadron, VF-43. And so they had A-4s. And so I went and said, and I, actually, that's where I wanted to go. And then I figured if I do that, I get qualified. And was, you do a lot of dogfighting and stuff and right. you'll get F-14s or something after that. That's what Phyllis said. Uh, what do you want to do that for? And... Uh, so she pulled you out of the sky, basically. And well, well, basically, well, what, what happened was he let me. Uh, they had a couple of instructors who were really good guys. And I got through flight training refresher with him. And uh, so he wanted to get me for an instructor in the school. There's, there's also the instrument training squadron. They had all these two-seat A4s to, to train fleet pilots. They do the, get their instrument card, keep right. it up to date. <coughs> And so um, that's what I figured I was going to do until Phyllis laid the law down. Yeah. And then uh, um, uh, I said, well, the Navy is trying to encourage us to go to grad school. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll see if I can get to the University of Richmond. I'll get a master's in business or something. So I, I got a master's MBA from the University of Richmond. And then, then so now I'll go back flying. I said, ah. And so... Um, I, I, I resigned. I said, "Screw it! I'm, you know, I'm, um, I, I'm not gonna." They had 
a challenging assignment for me, flying a C-54 down at the NAS Norfolk. I mean, it's four props, right. transport, and just a big pile of crap. And I said, I'm not doing that. And, uh, and so the admiral from the recruiting command, they got all kinds of rave notices about my speaking all over because I just didn't have too many gung-ho guys going around to giving uh, 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 big pro-military, pro-everything talks and loving every minute of it and, right. and, uh, and coming back from experience like that. And so the talk really went over well. And uh, so the, uh, the admiral from the recruiting command signed me up to be the XO of the Navy Recruiting District, Richmond. But I never did any XO stuff. Right. Somebody else to do that. I was just basically uh, doing R and R at home and, and uh, um, uh, doing speeches. So I, I gave thirteen hundred of them that first year back. Holy cow! That's a that's a lot of speaking. Okay. So one, one, I gave nine high school graduation speeches in one year. Wow. Um, so. You know, so you mentioned you get on recruiting duty. So after my dad got home, he worked out at Lockheed for a couple, two, uh, two or three years, I guess it was. And then he also, as you know, moved to the recruiting command out on yep. Long Island. So he was up in New York. Yeah, he was an area commander. He well, actually he had recruiting district first. He had recruiting district New York, and 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 the the way he tells the story, the way I think I remember it is it wasn't until he was on recruiting duty in New York and you were on recruiting duty in Richmond that you guys actually got together for the first time and had an opportunity to have a conversation face-to-face. -face. Is, is that accurate? Yep. Uh, I, I mean, I knew who he was by then, but I'd seen him at, at the, um, the plantation. We were out there, and that's I was, so I've seen him running around. Of course, before that, I'd actually... Yeah, you know, we were conversing with him. I knew everything about him except what he looked like. Right. And then I saw this guy out at the plantation. He was in solitary, and I was—I had two roommates at the plantation. That was getting me ready for the uh, the Life magazine cover. Right. And and uh, the other two guys were not known POWs, but they didn't want it to look like I was in solitary. So that's a clean and neat room that I'm sitting yeah. under. That. Yeah, with the fingers stuck out. So, so you didn't get to fly uh, much after you got back because Phyllis wanted to have some time with well, you, I, which is actually, understandable, right? Actually, I did because at that time, every recruiting district had a T thirty four. The Navy, uh, Naval Reserves, kept them up for us, and they were painted blue and gold. They oh. had a big set of wings on the side. So you got to Navy. fly that. Nice. And so. We only had two pilots in the command, and we had one airplane. So it's like having a 50% ownership of a T-34. Oh, that's nice. Uh, that's fun. So all, all the rest of the uh, uh, COs used to um, – uh, I went and got checked out in it. Of course, I instructed in it before, so I had 800 hours in the thing. and uh, uh, But I was just flying all over the place. And so instead of driving seven hours down to Bristol, Tennessee to visit that recruiting station – I'd fly down there, land at the local little civilian airport, and the recruiter would come out and get me, and I'd go look at this inspection and brief me on what they're doing, what his problems were, and, okay, how can I help? And then I'd go get back in my airplane. 
in a, you fly someplace neater than Bristol, fly up to um, a Roanoke or uh, Lynchburg or someplace like that. Yeah. They had better R&R at the motel and, you know, stay at a Holiday Inn. And then I'd fly out the next day. And so I was uh, roaring all over the place in this T-34. And, and when the, the officer team needed it, um, it was the purpose of the airplanes to take it to campuses and recruit aviators. Well, you really didn't have to work hard to recruit aviators. You know, right. If the guy had a breath in, had red blood and a breath in his body and 2020 yeah. vision, they could be pilots. Exactly. So what was your, uh, after you got back from Vietnam, uh, you had a few, a, a few different jobs before you ended up retiring. What, what was your favorite job that you did before you retired from the Navy oh, a- after, right. after Vietnam? Bad officer at the Naval Academy when Bill Lawrence was the soup. Yeah. You know, he, had my, he had my SRO a couple of times in Hanoi. And I had to call him Admiral or Soup if anybody else was around. But we were really close. And um, and he and Diane and Phyllis and I were did a lot of stuff one-on-one. And I was the junior bad officer. There were six bad officers. The other five guys were from the class of 61. And one was a... He didn't go to the academy, but he was a black shoe. And here I, I was the junior bad officer, except for them. I kept getting all the good deals. And um, Go uh, figure. <laughs> I couldn't figure that out. Uh, that's funny. So what? Um, how long did you uh, stay there at the academy as a battalion? And that's, that was when I met you. So I first met you and Phyllis. In 19, it was 1979, I believe, summer of 79, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. How long were you there as the bat- uh, battalion officer before you retired? 1982. I read that. 82, I finished 20 years, and they offered me a challenging assignment at the Bureau of Naval Personnel, which I very politely declined. Okay. I got out there. I think I probably would have made captain, but I just didn't want it. Uh, my dad was. 34 years in the Army. My brother, who was the same class at West Point, was in the Army for 17 years and then got out. All of us retired rather than doing a tour in D.C. Yeah, those, those are sometimes not not the more popular tours, for sure, uh, to do as a naval officer. Um, one more thing I really wanted to ask you about uh from your time there at the Naval Academy and working for Admiral Lawrence. Tell me about the, uh, I've heard a lot about these and I'd like to hear more about it from you about the Tet dinners that you guys started there in, in, in Annapolis. What, what was the impetus that started those and, and how'd that all get going? Well, um, yeah, I, I see, I'm trying to think who started. Ned Schumann, I think started them. And we used to have, uh, but we went down, one of the guys had been going to the, um, uh, and then when he was in the Pentagon, Orson, Orson. Orson Swindle. Yeah, he got to know Toy, Toy Nguyen, who was, he was the Arvin lieutenant colonel that uh, started that little restaurant. And so he, he was going over there. He was personal friend to Toys. And when he was in, down at uh, Cherry Point and the other place, he was in the Marines. You know, he got to D.C., he'd stay with Toy 
and, and, and I just I, I want to so everybody knows who this guy is that you're talking about now. He was a South. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but he was a South Vietnamese uh, army officer that was in prison with you guys. No, 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 no. He was he was uh, I forget what he did in the South Vietnamese army, but he was kept for reeducation. OK. After we came back. So he was that held court. in prison after you left then, basically. Yep. Okay. And then, but, but then he got uh, to come back to the U.S. as one of the boat people. They escaped from murder, however they got out of, I think they bought their way out. And it was um, Orson Swindle that became close friends with him? Yeah, when Orson was stationed at the Pentagon, Toy had this restaurant going. And Orson started going there. He said, hey, this food is really good. So he was between weddings then, and he uh, um, used to eat there almost every night, and he and Toy really got to be good friends. That's where all those pictures came from. Have you ever been to the restaurant? I have not. No, I've so, my dad sent me um, a lot of pictures, and he sent me uh, attendee rosters from a lot of the tech dinners, and you're, of course, on those all the time. Ned Schumann's on it. Um, it looked Fred like Gordon. it was a good time. We had seven of us were at the academy at the same time, and there was a group before us, Denver Key and uh, um, several other ones before us, but there were seven of us that, that were there. And you know, your dad was chief of staff, which is next to the commandant's probably the most powerful position at the academy. We worked right for the soup. And um, um, actually, he didn't work for the soup. He worked for the commander of... Um, a naval station in Annapolis. Okay. Ned Schumann was he was the skipper of the uh, across the river where the, the, the small craft facility was. Yeah, they actually had an air station there for a while, and uh, which they eventually shut down. Not, I don't remember if it was still there when you were or not. Yeah, I can't remember uh, if they had an air station over there or not when we lived there. Seventy nine, eighty. Well, it had seaplanes. We were the last class. Um, had these N3Ns, open cockpit biplanes, and 62 was the last class to actually fly in them. Oh, and I had sweet. Two, two, or three, two or three rides in them, flew under the Bay Bridge back when it was just one lane, or you know, actually two lanes back and forth. And, uh, but we, we flew under this thing, and, um, and it was an N3N, but it didn't have wheels. It had a big pontoon on the bottom of it and wow. little outriggers on the wings. That, and, uh, that's really cool. And my com first company officer, Varsity Vic Vine, was a, uh, had been a P P two pilot, the Neptune, and uh, they had these in these um, Air Force version was SA uh, sixteen and what do we call them? It was a, a Grumman widget or goose. Anyway, so little SA sixteen was the McNamara name for it. We call it the UF, the Utility Aircraft by Grumman. And uh, um, it was a neat little airplane. But my company officer used to fly that for proficiency. And I really got on his good side. I was the company commander for my class for the first two years. And I think I told you about that. I was number one in the whole company and, yeah. and, and the whole class in Greece. And then uh, we swapped companies. I went, to, I went from Varsity Vic Fine as we played football at Navy, it was a pilot, and he, he was just loosey-goosey, and he, 
he took the grommet out of his, so he had this big white pillow on top of his head. He wore it to walk around. He's an Italian from New Jersey. And so we had a lot in common. And, uh, and, uh, and Varsity Dick, um, well, everybody loved the guy. He's just fun to be around. And I went from that to uh, the 22nd Company. Thanks to Varsity Vic, plus the captain of the football team was our company commander. Right. We were known as affectionately as the loose double deuce. Yeah. <laughs> because we, didn't, we really didn't have a plea beer. And meanwhile, McGrath's company, that was the 22nd company, McGrath was upstairs in the 21st company. And he had Bill Lift, which was a Marine captain, who'd been a big striper. I think he was six striper as a mid. Right. And he's now he's the captain of Marines, and and uh, they were carrying swagger sticks. And, and his, his son Scott was um, a midshipman when I was a bad officer, and he was Scott was in class of '82. Yeah, and I we talked about that before. I know Scott. I've known Scott for a few years now. He lives in Nashville. A great, great uh, guy. Really good his guy. Dad, his dad was. I, I was actually going Marines my first two years, and uh, I didn't. But too many people know that. But uh, I wasn't sure. I get a little woozy, seasick, and I wasn't sure I wanted to get on boats. And um, I never got sick flying, but uh, um, um, I wasn't sure. What, but I was thinking about going Marines and uh, and being the next Pappy Boyington, and I knew all of uh, <laughs> And I was an Army brat, so I got out of a bunch of stuff because I could do Army talk. I knew everything at Cleveland West Point had to know. So they all those songs we used to have to learn. I knew all the West Point fight songs, and I knew all this other stuff. And these upperclassmen said, Jesus, Connie's really sharp. And, uh, and I got to Valley Forge Military Academy, so I knew military stuff. But they, te they teach military stuff better than Marines do, with all due respect, sir. Um, and we had We had all our military stuff from British... Um, uh, retired uh, Queens guards. And so, um, you silly little man, get your head up. <laughs> March like, like the Brits. It was the, it was the school that was in the movie taps. And if you, you remember that they're marching, swinging their arms out and oh, yeah. you snap your feet in. And, and that's when I learned how to march. And so my classmates, I used to get singled out by all that uh, plebe detail to, to demonstrate stuff for the rest of the class. Which pissed the Marines off. Ripley was one of the Marines that had been the Naps. Uh, John Ripley, probably my favorite classmate. Uh, but anyway, Rip, um, um, you couldn't get out. Those guys didn't. You guys don't know how to march. I do rifle. I, mean, I can snap a rifle around like nobody's business. And so my nickname, Plebe Summer, was Robbie Robot. Because I, <laughs> I, but we also took the colors for plebe summer because I taught the plebes in our our um, platoon. I guess we had four companies and two platoons each, and uh, our platoon won the colors for that for the summer because we can march and do everything better than any of the other plebes. Oh, that's excellent. Well, well, plus our second our second classman had been a friend of mine in fifth grade, um, and Cal Sutliff. And uh, that was over in Yokohama, Japan. And I hadn't seen him since then. So I come back, and I come in as a plebe. He said, oh, he said, were you, were you at uh, Nasugbu Beach Elementary School in 
Yokohama in 1950? Yes, sir. I said, Cal Sodleff. And so I got spooned right away from a plebe detail guy. <laughs> that never happened to anybody else. So uh, my classmates are saying, who is this guy? That's great. That's a great story. I love, I love listening to your stories. Um, but before I let you go today, there, there's actually one more thing I, I want to ask you about. So recently, um, I read an article that you wrote uh, many years ago. It's titled, Americans Have Much to Be Thankful For. Um, when did you write that? And, and, and what prompted you to write that article? It, it, it's a fantastic article, by the way. I really enjoyed it. So t- can you tell me a little I, bit I, about I, the origins? I, yeah, I was, I was just fed up. And this is why my talks went over so well in all these schools, is I was really positive. And I was, and I was like, you know, uh, uh, the, the founding fathers. I, I still remember all that stuff because we had that growing up. In the interim, they, they pulled that out of most schools, and they weren't teaching gung-ho stuff to, to school kids. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, but I was going around doing this, and the only people that didn't like it were some teachers that had been you know, uh, uh, little spoiled dumplings uh, uh, during the late 60s. And, yeah, everything sucks around here. This is just terrible. And my, my little message was the exact opposite. And I've heard your dad talk to you. He does the same thing. Yeah. So and tell I, me what the message is for people. People, I, I'm going to put a link to the article, by the way, uh, in the details section of this podcast episode that we released, because I think it's a really <clears> neat <throat> article. But can you sum up? Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what that article's about? Yeah, it's basically... Um, uh, and, and everybody loves my quote. It's, and now it's in the Virginia War Memorial. And uh, it, it occurred to me when they're asking, oh, they're, they're, they're filming a documentary. They said, what three things did you learn when you were a POW? And just to close it off, I said, well, I, you know, I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. And um, um, no matter how bad I had it, somebody else always had it worse. He says, okay. We need a third one. Give us a third one. It just popped in my head, and I said, "No such thing as a bad day when there's a doorknob on the inside." Yeah, and that's really, really the thrust of every talk I ever gave. It ends up on that. I said, "I'm going through this. I'm a happy camper." I said, "Now, what was that? You were, what was that problem you were telling me about a little earlier?" Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd really like to be sympathetic, but I'm frankly having a little trouble. Yeah. My dad uses that line all the time. It's always a good day in the USA. When you got a doorknob on the inside. What do you have to complain about, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, this has been a lot of fun, Paul. I really yeah, appreciate you doing it. I, I, I've just had a ton of fun, and I can't wait to see you. Okay, Pat, thanks. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. And a big thank you to Paul Galanti for joining us to tell us so many of his stories. Make sure to check out the link in the details section of this episode and read the article written by Paul. Americans have much to be thankful for. If you enjoy the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast series, 
Please recommend it to a friend and share the link on your social media pages. It's an easy and a free way to help us spread these stories as we lead up to the 50-year anniversary of the POW release, which will be celebrated in February of 2023. Visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate, to see pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.